If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Chapter 13. The carriage door was jerked open and Corwin rolled out of the carriage onto the muddy ground. Had she fallen asleep? The market square was all but empty now and the sun very low in the sky. What the hell? What is this in my carriage? A man, not much taller than Corwin herself and obviously very angry, gestured at her with his cane. He was dressed in blue breeches, a white shirt, black boots and a blue greatcoat fitted with gold buttons. To Corwin's exhausted eyes he looked like a toy soldier. In response to his motion, a large slave appeared and jerked Corwin to her feet. What are you? Hard grey eyes took in her filthy clothes, dirty feet, and the bruises on her face. Please you must help me monsieur. I have been abducted by pirates. Are you insane? Everyone on this island do if not a pirate has been taken by them. The marionette said sharply, I am Lady Corwin Chase. I was sailing on an English ship the albatross bound for Virginia, when it was taken. My brother is a captain in the English Navy. He will reward you handsomely for my safe return. You are an English lady? I do not believe it. I think you are some governess telling me lies. I am telling the truth. I can explain everything but it is not safe for us to talk here. If the men looking for me find me you will not collect a reward. She tried to look around but the giant holding her had too firm a grip. After a long moment's consideration, the Frenchman nodded at the carriage and the giant released her. Corwin darted back inside and her diminutive escort followed, seating himself as far away from her as the small space allowed. He used his walking stick to rap on the ceiling of the carriage and the conveyance rattled into motion. You were taken captive alone? No husband? No family? No servants? How can this be? His sharp eyes darted from the dirt caked on her feet to her shorn and tangled hair. My maid died during the crossing. There was a storm and she was swept overboard. My brother is a captain in the English Navy, stationed in Virginia. We purchased my passage on the Albatross because I could not travel on his ship with him. Her interrogator cocked his head to one side. Your brother put you on a boat with only a maid. She died in a storm. And then your ship was taken by pirates. You are a very unlucky lady. But now you will help me. Return me to my brother and you shall receive a king's ransom. The man looked out the window of his carriage for a long moment as if considering her words. When he turned back, his tone was more cordial. I am sorry mademoiselle, for my previous manner. You cannot know how many liars and thieves reside on this island. I am Francois Dujos, Macquis du Lion. If what you say is true I will do everything in my power to aid you. Shifting position to regard her more directly, he continued. You were very fortunate to find me. Many here would have sold you to Brussels or put you on the auction block. Corwin was shocked to hear her possible fate presented so bluntly. I am very grateful indeed to have found a man of honor here. 
I know my brother will be overjoyed at my return. Certainly, mademoiselle. As a gentleman I am bound to protect you. A quarter of an hour later, having clattered through a maze of narrow streets, the coach passed through a large iron gate. In a matter of moments a young dark-skinned man-servant dressed in black livery opened the carriage door. Dujol stepped out first and Corwin followed after. She and her Savoie stood on a cobble drive before a brick townhouse that would have been quite at home on any fine street in Paris. It was isolated from neighboring houses by a very high wall, the windows on the first floor were small and protected by iron bars. The front door, painted black, was fortified by thick metal bands. A second floor with more generous apertures overlooked the cobbled courtyard, reminding Corwin of Christina's home in London. An inner brick wall extended from one side of the house and she could just make out the tops of small trees inside it. She realized it must contain a private garden. As Dujols led her up three semicircular steps, the door to the house was opened by a young woman dressed in a long black gown. Her short black hair was tightly curled and her eyes wide and frightened as she took the Frenchman's cane and greatcoat. My servant Adam Willis got you to room. You must have a bus and a change of clothes. Adam turned out to be the large man who had pulled her to her feet when she had fallen out of the carriage. While other servants she had seen were dressed all in black, he wore white canvas breeches, a muslin shirt, and thick black sandals. He seemed to serve Dujols both as major domo and body servant. As he led Corwin up a curved staircase she saw many paintings of French lords and ladies hanging on the cream-colored walls. Could they be her host's family portraits? On the second floor landing, she saw glass and brass wall sconces with flickering candles mounted between a half-dozen bedroom doors. Adam opened the door farthest from the staircase and stepped aside to let her enter the room. Thank you, she said as she moved past him. For an instant their eyes met and she saw something like pity or regret in his expression. Then he was gone and the door was closed behind him. Corwin explored the elegant bedchamber. A beautiful four-poster mahogany bed took up the entire wall to the left of a large lace-curtained window. The entire wall to the right of the window featured an elaborately carved armoire replete with a wardrobe, drawers of every size, and a huge mirror that looked like a pool of silver-black water. The wood floor was very smooth and polished to a high gloss and the very last of the day's sunlight painted the pale pink walls gold. Corwin stepped to the wide window and looked down. The fall was at least thirty feet and Corwin knew without a doubt that this time there would be no daring escape across a branches or long drop to freedom. Her window looked down on the private garden she had seen from the drive. Its high wall protected a verdant lawn, several fruit trees, many flowering plants including roses and orchids, a small fountain, and a welcoming wood bench. When she heard the door to her room open behind her, she turned to find a pair of liveried men bringing in a large metal bathing tub. They placed it in the center of the room. As they left, several more men appeared carrying heavy buckets of steaming hot water which they used to fill the tub. Two women appeared as the men were departing. They held clothing, soap, squares of soft flannel. One of the women seemed to be a year or two younger than Corwin, while the other seemed old enough to be her mother. In watching the long parade of servants moving in and out of her room it seemed that Dujols had no English, French, or European servants. Everyone wearing his livery seemed to be of African or West Indian descent. She thought they all must be slaves. Accepting the inevitable, Corwin allowed the maids to sit her on a little stool before the silver-black mirror. She watched as they began patiently working their way through the tangled and matted mass of her hair. When their work was done, the elder woman studied Corwin's reflection in the mirror then reached into her apron pocket. She unfolded a straight razor and swiftly began adjusting the awkward cut Corwin had given herself earlier in the day. 
When her work was done, Corwin's hair had become a collection of soft black waves that framed her face, covered her ears, and caressed the base of her neck. Once the issues with Corwin's hair had been resolved, the women began trying to undress her. Corwin stepped away and swiftly stepped out of Devon's shirt and cinched up breeches. Then she turned to look at herself in the mirror. It had been months since she had seen her reflection. Her face, hands and feet were sun-browned while the rest of her remained very pale. Her body looked trim and strong from the many weeks on Black's ship, but she had scrapes and bruises on her face, shins, knees, and forearms from her attempt to escape Black on the dock. Her heart lurched. Would she really never see him again? How many years would it take her to forget the time they had shared on his ship? The maids helped her step into the bath and sit down. They used lavender soap and flannel squares to wash her skin, and an exotic-smelling oil to wash her hair. When the time came to rinse they used the last two buckets of fresh hot water. The women patted her dry when she stepped out of the bath, then they helped her into an underdress, crinolines, a corset and a bright yellow overdress with matching court shoes. For the first time in a very long time, she was decently dressed like a gentlewoman of her station. The elder of the two maids ushered Corwin out of her room, down the stairs, through the foyer into a pale green and white dining room filled with mirrors and lit by dozens of candles. Corwin took a seat at the long lace-covered table from Francois Dujols. He too had washed and dressed. A grey silk shirt, an embroidered vest of silver satin, and grey breeches had replaced the somewhat martial apparel he had sported earlier in the day. He could have been a gentleman from any of the finest houses on the continent. Once again she wondered what he was doing in a place like this. A bath and new clothes show you for the grand lady you are, said Dujols. As he spoke his eyes wandered across her form, moving from hands, to face, to the bodice of her gown which she wished were a little higher and a little less snug. Thank you. I am very glad to be safe at last. You are so fortunate, said Dujols. He rose and moved to stand behind her chair. Very few women survive capture by pirates so well, he said as he touched her hair. Corwin stood, turned away from him, and took a few steps to put a comfortable distance between them. Obviously it was time to discuss the nature of his reward for rescuing her, lest he decide that her hair was not the only thing he would like to handle. I would like to send word to my brother right away. But of course. I shall make arrangements immediately after dinner, said Dujols. He moved to her, took her by the arm, and led her back to her chair. As she took her seat two servants bearing a meal of cold beef, cheese, bread and fruit entered the room. While they laid the dishes upon the table, he continued, Now, you must tell me of your misfortune. Who took you captive? I will see him for his crimes. I do not know his name. I was thrown in the hold for the entire voyage, I never saw him, lied Corwin. The last thing she needed was for Dujols to decide that returning her to Lord Black was more profitable than waiting for a long-lost brother to appear. How terrible for you to be treated so. A lady's virtue is her most private possession, clucked Dujols. He sat at the table, apparently disinterested in the food that the servants had already begun to pile on their plates. My virtue remains intact. Perhaps the captain feared reprisal, or hoped to ransom me, or perhaps he just did not like women. In any case, I arrived here and he tried to sell me and then I hid in your carriage. To whom were you sold? That man will know the name of the pirate who took you. I do not know. A crewman told me I had been sold, and bundled me from the ship. I escaped once we were on shore, and here I am with your grace, said Corwin. Tell me the name of the crewman and describe his appearance. With that I can know all. My lord, I do not want justice from this lawless place. 
I simply wish to be returned to my brother. De Jules nodded as if he had just confirmed something to his own satisfaction. Corwin decided she had better take the bull by the horns to avoid further interrogation. If you would, my lord, El will write a letter to my brother in Virginia this very night, and tomorrow you can find a ship to carry it to him. Once he knows I am alive he will seek me out swiftly. Indeed we shall. Of course. But you must understand that such correspondence may take weeks to arrive at its destination. Which is why we must begin right away, said Corwin. She prayed this strange little man meant what he said. Perhaps in a month or two she would be safe in Ben's arms, away from Dujol's black and all their minions. Of course. And until he arrives, you shall be my honored guest. Corwin sighed with relief and began to eat. In time she noticed that Dujol's was studying her every move. He was confirming for himself that she was indeed an English peer who had somehow been taken at sea. So in return she watched him. His table manners, like his clothing, were impeccable. When he began to ask her about her home she saw no harm in telling him about her life in Cornwall. She ended with her brother's commission and her decision to come with him to the new world. That seems a very strange matter to me. I cannot imagine any man bringing a young woman such as yourself to such wild lands. I would think he would have wanted to see you presented at Cottonwood. Corwin's heart froze in her chest. Setting down her knife and fork she said. My brother and I have always been very close, and he has always been very indulgent. I refused a season at court and I demanded that I be allowed to come. I said I would follow him on my own if he did not make arrangements for me. He had no way to stop me since I have a title and money in my own right. So you were a very willful young woman. I trust you have learned new ways. It is very true that I did not understand the many evils of this world, monsieur. Not long after that, she and Dujols finished their shared meal and she was allowed to leave the table. Once back in her room she found a small desk, paper, and ink had been provided. Corwin penned her letter to Ben that evening just as she had promised. Sure that Dujols would read the missive, she carefully considered each word. When it was done she knew it contained precious little information, but after all, what more need she say? She was alive and waiting for rescue. Sealing the note with a short, fierce prayer, she addressed it to Benjamin Chase, captain of the HMS Verity, stationed in Virginia. Shortly after the letter was done and resting on her desk, the elder of the two women who had bathed her appeared at her door. She retrieved a silk nightgown from the armoire and presented the garment to Corwin. She said, Thank you. When I go to bed I shall put it on. At this the woman looked uncertain, and she remained where she was, still offering the garment to Corwin. You may go to bed if you like. I am sure you must be very tired, Corwin said. She had never enjoyed the attentions of a lady's maid and she almost never accepted them. The woman shook her head slowly. Fear sparkled in her dark eyes as she continued to offer the gown. Must you see me in bed before you sleep? Had Dujols given the girl explicit instructions about the matter? The woman appeared uncertain for a moment then nodded, as if she had just come to comprehend the question. She moved behind Corwin and began to undo the lacings and buttons of the yellow dress. When Corwin was naked, the woman dropped the gown over her head and buttoned the collar and cuffs. Corwin slipped into the deep feather bed and beneath the weight of Adan Duvet while the maid put out the candles and left the room, where, Corwin wondered as weariness overcame to her, was black. Was he looking for her? He had probably returned to his ship and set sail right after selling her. She buried her head in a pillow and forced herself not to cry. She refused to shed a tear for a man who cared nothing for her. He had no idea she would try to escape so soon. You said she was difficult, mon ami, not mad, said André. He was seated in his study with his feet up on his desk. I warned you she would try to run away. 
how hard it was not to kill this man for losing Corwin. Zagor clambered out a window on the second floor, ran through the trees, and jumped to the street. Andre said, shaking his head, This is madness. My man chased her into the market. Then she disappeared. Such a spirited woman, I should never have trusted you with her, Black said crossly. He was frightened for the girl and furious with himself. Corwin had been willing to die on his ship in order to escape him. What had made him believe that she would simply allow herself to be returned to England on some ship not of her choosing? Now she was lost in the hard world he had fought so hard to leave behind. She had probably already discovered that he was a tender lover compared to the men that frequented this lawless stronghold. Another wave of sick despair passed over him. He should have carried her all the way home, no matter the cost to himself and his crew. Where the hell can she be? How in the world will we find her? He asked. My men are searching the Brussels and Darwin. He think we will find her. She is the kind of woman who will always cause a stir. Andre offered. When Black made no reply, he went on. If someone treat you sell you they will want a very high price. I will have my men watch the auction. Devon turned away while Andre was speaking. If he had to listen to one more word he would strangle the man. Clearly Corwin meant less than nothing to him. In these waters women were property like cattle, slaves, and ships. Andre followed Black to the door. You may be sure I will find her. Before he could finish speaking, Black was gone, disappearing into the darkness of the street. Shaking his head, Andre closed the door. He found himself thinking it would be very sad if, when they did find the girl, she was dead. Pirate's Desire by Andrea Stewart. Voice recording copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music by Alexander Schweif licensed from Pond 5.